You're in the water loop. You're in the water loop. This is Travis. I'm here with Chad Nelson, the CEO of Surfrider Foundation. Chad, how's it going? Excellent. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, totally happy to be talking to you. I, uh, Surfrider Foundation is like my favorite organization as a as a surfer myself. Um, you know, as a water person, I care about a lot of different NGOs and organizations and stuff. But nothing's more important to me really than than surfing. Um, so really psyched to be talking to you. Yeah, excellent. Yeah. So uh, before we get into like the real hard hitting questions, the most important one is what's the what's the surf report there in San, San Clemente? Anything going on today? You know, after we've had a great run of surf uh, this winter, generally right now, there's about there's a big storm that's about to hit. It's supposed to rain like crazy here from now until next Monday. Uh, and it's also flat. Ah. So no surf. And as we might get into, um, we're about to head into some polluted runoff. Yeah. Well, same, same situation on my end here in Wilmington, North Carolina. There's nothing going on out there. Uh, I just looked kind of longer term and I'm, I'm, looks like I'll be waiting like a week at least before I'm got something to get in. And that's just when you start climbing up the walls. (laughs) Well, and you guys just had, I mean, we, we spoke last week, you guys just had a decent run of surf from that nor'easter that came through didn't you exactly exactly after that kind of came through and and then uh cleared up the weather cleared up right away and there were some nice waves on the back side of the storm so i guess i can't complain too much yeah yeah so uh surf rider foundation just tell folks that might not be familiar with it uh what your organization's all about which what's your mission yeah, so our, I'll give you the mission statement, and then I'll, I'll tell you in English. Uh, right. uh, the mission statement is the uh, protection and enjoyment of the world's ocean waves and beaches through a powerful activist network. Uh, and what I like about that mission statement is protection and enjoyment. So we're out there protecting our coasts and oceans, but we also celebrate getting out there and recreating. And so we, you know, we promote all kinds of ocean recreation, surfing obviously included. Um, it talks about where we do it, which is ocean waves and beaches. So we're coastal. Uh, we focus on ocean issues, coastal issues, and sort of nearshore land issues. And that's somewhat unique. There's a lot of groups that are either focused on land issues and or they're focused on water issues. And we kind of have a foot planted on the sand and in the in the water. Uh, and then says how, which is powerful activist network. Uh, we're a grassroots-based organization, and we've got chapters and local activists and community members around the country and the world uh, working on these issues. Yeah, I love that you guys uh, have that front and center, the idea that that you're doing this because you all personally care about being able to use the ocean and to go surfing and not have to deal with pollution and other problems. You're you're you know, you're blatantly saying like, hey, we we love to play in the in the ocean here and ride these waves. So that's why we're doing this work. Um, and I and it, the whole like local chapter uh, setup is really cool. I you know, here in Wilmington, we have the, the Cape Fear chapter, and they do lots of good stuff. They just had a uh, took people's Christmas trees, yeah, drug them out to the dunes, and helped you know helped kind of build them, help strengthen those dunes and build them back up. That's always a cool thing to check out. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we just like you, we try to take that passion people have for surfing uh, and, and convert that to protection, right? And uh, their self interest. You don't want to get sick when you go surfing, and. Uh, and also, I think surfers feel a lot of gratitude for uh, 
all the fun and uh, good times and the people they know and uh, in the oceans. So they want to give back a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. How did you get? Uh, how did you get into this? I mean, I guess you kind of started surfing when you were younger, and then you ended up getting into kind of the environmental field, science, and marine biology, and stuff like that. How did you get? Uh, how did you get to this? To this seat as directing this organization? Yeah, uh, it, it's actually kind of been a long, a sort of long, relatively long road. But you know, I grew up on the coast in Southern California and Laguna Beach. Uh, feel really lucky to have grown up like you know playing in the ocean my entire life. I, I, I learned to surf when I was seven or eight years old um, and, you know, was a lifeguard, was fishing, was doing it all. Um, and there was a, there were a couple of experiences that kind of growing up in Southern California, which was, you know, rapidly urbanizing during the late seventies and early eighties. And, and that affected sort of, you know, got me interested in this. One was when I was 16 years old, uh, just newly minted lifeguard, my buddies were getting, you know, we were getting certified in diving and uh, Laguna Beach has these rocky reefs and kelp forests. And so we got spear guns and we were out there trying to spear fish uh, and we'd come back empty handed every time. And, you know, we thought we were just bad spear fishermen. You know, we didn't know what we were doing. So, you know, we talked to the older lifeguards and say, hey, guys, like, what are we doing wrong? Like, how do we how do we go catch these fish? Uh, you know, and they told us they're like, it's fished out. All wow. fish, all fish have been caught, and wow. uh, yeah, and uh, you know, it was sort of this fatalistic. You should have been here yesterday, kind of uh, attitude, and it just struck me as so wrong. Like, w wait, the fish are gone, you know, and that. So that was one of these things. Like that was a head scratcher, and, and it just seemed fundamentally wrong. Um, and uh, you know, and, and actually, skipping ahead a little bit, you flash forward to today. Laguna Beach is now a marine reserve. Something surf fighter participated in, and it's teeming with wildlife, you know. So, 30 years odd years later, it's back, which is That's awesome. awesome. You can, you know, these things are solvable. Uh, the other was just watching, you know, it used to be if you got a cut on your hand, your mom would say, Hey, go get in the ocean, it'll clean it out, <laughs> you know. And, and now, after it rains in Southern California, you can't go in the water for 72 hours because it's polluted. So watching that shift occur, those are like the seminal moments as a kid that sort of set, made me think, okay, I got to I gotta do something about this. Um, went to grad school at Duke University in your neck of the woods in Beaufort, North Carolina at the Marine Lab and yeah. studied coastal environmental management. So that was kind of one of the steps towards getting a career in ocean and coastal protection. Uh, I was broke well, <laughs> that, uh, as most grad students are. So I came right. home, lived with my parents for the summer and uh, volunteered at Surfrider while I did odd jobs to make some money. Uh, and uh, that was where I got a taste of Surfrider in 1995. Uh, got a job here in 1998, over 20 years ago, as a junior environmental program person. And I've just been working my way up the ladder in about four and a half years ago, I got hired as the CEO. Awesome. Awesome. What a, what a journey. It's amazing how, how those paths go for us, right? And just how one thing leads to another and how you get to where you are today. Uh, but it's, it, you talk to a lot of people that work in water or in some way, shape or form, something touched them like when they were young, right? There was some spark. Uh, and usually it was some real personal experience with, with them and the ocean or whatever, whatever that water might be um, that sent them on their way. 
So I want to talk to you about some of the, the specific kind of programs, initiatives, and stuff that Surfrider has that kind of catch my attention. Uh, yeah. And one is this uh, SmartFin program. Yes. Um, I, I was reading about this on your website. Tell me about it. And uh, it seems like it's it's pretty local there. I wish I could ride around with uh, with one of these on on my boards. But yeah, what's SmartFin all about? Hopefully someday you will. Um, you know, surfers are in the ocean more than almost any other user group uh, out there. You know, they're beach there's more beachgoers, uh, you know, there's, there's people out, but surfers tend to, you know, a lot of surfers surf 100 days a year, they're in the water a couple times a week, they're in the water year round. So in many ways, they're sort of like the perfect group of people to do citizen science or, or monitoring of the ocean. Um, SmartFin was actually invented by a guy who's a non-surfer. Hmm. He's a... <clears throat> Excuse me. He sort of, he was a, a doctor from New York City, and uh, you know he was worried about climate change and ocean acidification. Uh, and he had this brainstorm: Hey, there's these surfers along these coasts all over the world. Like, why don't we try to tap into their sort of presence to start monitoring ocean conditions? Uh, and so he he conceptualized this idea. He partnered with Scripps. And what they're doing is essentially they're building a surfboard fin that is a monitoring, oceanographic monitoring device. So, you know, the idea is the fin can measure your location, GPS, it can measure ocean temperature. Uh, the goal is to continue to add sensors. They want to be able to measure the holy grail is acidification, pH. Oh, yeah. You know, and they're also talking about salinity and uh, sort of some measurement of water visibility so the goal is to turn surfers into these sort of passive you know monitoring devices all over the world and uh and engage those surfers in sort of the citizen science yeah and then so like you know somebody comes in from a session and then that they can just you know download that data somehow whether it be through like usb or bluetooth or who knows however that that works huh yeah. and th and then that feeds into probably some some central database where those guys can take a look at what's going on yeah and you know it's interesting so you know you can monitor the water's edge because people walk down like we do with water quality monitoring and scoop a little sample of water and you know either equipment or research vehicles can kind of monitor up to the surf zone but that surf zone is a important area and also really hard to measure because the surfs, you know, it's it's destructive of instruments. Boats can't go in there. So the surfers are also kind of measuring, the, huh. the, you know, this, this zone that is hard to measure and, and important in all these systems. So, yeah. So it's kind of like in a pilot developmental phase right now. So, you know, it's we're sort of at the bleeding edge. They're trying to miniaturize all of this technology, get it into a surfboard fin and yeah. also make that fin sort of perform as well as a normal surfboard fin within reason and so it's been challenging so they've been demoing it in san diego with our san diego chapter which is the home of scripts you know the right. oceanographic institute so that's you know the goal is to get it figured out and then you know expand yeah nationally cool. globally yeah yeah all right well I, i'll uh wherever there's a sign up sign up sheet for you know yeah. coastal north carolina i'll put my name on that and, and hope to get one that would be really cool to be part of that yeah cool um also want to talk about you know this issue of plastic pollution right uh not to get too depressing with the conversation here sure. but 
it's a big, big, huge problem. It's all over the news and all over social media, which I guess is good. It's really raising awareness for people. Um, what's what's Surfrider's take on the plastic pollution problem, on the solutions? What are you guys kind of doing about it? Yeah, no, uh, it is a huge problem. Actually, one of the people credited with sort of realizing the extent of this problem was a guy named and had plankton that's out on his boat and he started finding more and more plastic. He was sort of surprised, you know, out in the sort of deep blue ocean and was like, what's it doing out here? He got a start as a volunteer at Surfrider in Seal Beach doing water quality monitoring. So ah, like, right. out of the, the, the sort of citizen science that, you know, helped raise this global awareness about this problem. Um, so yeah, it is a problem. I mean, we, we partner with another great group called Five Gyres that's been crossing all the major oceanographic gyres, collecting data on plastic, and it's ubiquitous. Uh, they call it a plastic smog, which I think is an apt term. It's just everywhere, mm. particles. So, th- you know, it, it, and it's having ecosystem impacts and, you know, potentially ultimately human health impacts. So it's a big problem, uh, and it is, you know, it, and on one hand, it's depressing. On the other hand, it's another one of these cases, and this is why I'm an optimist about all this stuff. These are all solvable problems. We know It's not like we don't know the science. It's not like we don't know what to do. It's just a matter of deciding to do it. Do it, yeah. Uh, and, and for us at Surfrider, we sort of, we have like three or four ways that we're tackling this problem. Um, we do about a thousand beach cleanups a year around the country. out there every year picking up trash and you know it's funny beach cleanups will not we're not going to beach clean up our way out of this problem you know we're scratching the surface on the on the scale of it but what those beach cleanups do is they raise awareness for people we collect the data on what kind of plastics we're finding so that can inform policy so what are we finding on the beaches you know straws bottle caps water bottles bags and wrappers so let's go tackle those things try to get those out of the system Um, we do policy work so last year we passed 52 laws and policies in local communities around the country banning foam plastic bags cigarette smoking on beaches because cigarettes are the number one item found on beaches worldwide uh you know and trying to identify straws trying to identify these commonly found single-use plastics that frankly we don't need right and getting those out of the system so we're doing that we work with business. We have a program called Ocean Friendly Restaurants. We're encouraging restaurants to eliminate single-use plastics and kind of give them an ocean-friendly certification. So imagine the last time you ordered takeout. Oh, I know. I know. And at the end of the meal, you look over on the counter, and there's this giant mound of crap. You know, they've got six of those bags with the spork and the napkin in them, and all, you know, yeah, the, the bag, the bag it came in, then the plastic container that the food itself was in, and then you've got the yeah, the, the little utensil kit, and then like the packets of this sauce and that sauce that you don't even use. Yeah, and it's like it's like oh my gosh, it's terrible. So so we're trying to sort of tackle that side of it as well, um, and uh, and then we do a ton of out- outreach and education, just trying to get people to change their habits. You know, yeah. so personal behavior. Uh, outreach and education, law and policy, and working with business. For us, that's kind of, if we can get all those things humming, we feel like we can kind of disrupt what is, you know, uh, a sort of a vicious cycle of, frankly, 
lazy consumerism in some respects. Oh, sure. And the, the one of the ways, big ways you guys do this is, is then through that local level, right? Through that chapter model, you guys kind of have the tools there for your local chapters to then go talk to restaurants in their community or talk to their local elected officials or organize that beach cleanup. I mean, that's really how all that's deployed, right? Exactly. So we build, you know, we have this network of these, we have a 81 chapters and about 100 high school and college clubs. And so we'll put together a toolkit on how to pass a plastic bag ordinance in your local community. I just I just saw that on your uh, your guys' Twitter account, actually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so the idea with the network model at Surfrider is let's, you know, instead of you having to figure out what a plastic bag ordinance should look like for your community, why don't we learn from the ones we've been making and then share that intelligence across the network so we can, you know, spread it out. And then our goal is to scale those up. So California in 2016 uh, passed a, a proposition on the ballot to ban single-use plastic bags. It was the first state in the uh, in the country to do that, now to five cents fee, fee for paper. So start at the local level, get critical mass, scale it up to the state and the federal level. That's kind of our model. Yeah. I tell you, it's like, uh, it's shocking to me, you know, when I visit the beach and I just find plastic, you know, like uh, New Year's Day, January 1st, um, you know, my wife and kids, we went out to the to the beach mid-morning and to, kids were going to go skimboarding. It's like this beautiful day. It's New Year, the new year. And there's just like a plastic cup sitting right on the sand. And I'm just like, I just don't understand like in 2019 <laughs> at that moment. Yeah. You know, like who who's who's doing that? Who's just throwing trash on the ground and not picking it up? Um, you know, so of course we we always find that stuff and take it out with us, but it's it's just kind of always shocks me, you know, that, that people have that mindset. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you're you're old enough to remember the sort of crying Indian advertisement of the late seventies, early eighties, but you know, there was this ad that that, that was really famous in the country and it had this sort of Indian watch standing by a highway and like, which was covered with litter, you know, and um, it was, it was a don't litter ad kind of like respect the country and our land. And it was pretty effective, I think. But, you know, we each generation, like we had to stop littering, which we still do, obviously. Yeah. And then our, I feel like our generation is sort of like the, the recycling generation, which we thought is, oh, that's being a good steward. And I think the next generation is going to be a, a elimination of single use plastic generation. You know, I already see my kids. They'll go to the, you know, get a soft drink or something. And they won't get the lid in the straw. I'm like, yeah, that's all. You know, we're we're slowly progressing. I think, hopefully, towards a, a more sustainable, you know, future when it comes to plastic use. Yeah. Uh, another area that you guys are are really active. One of your big focus areas is this offshore drilling. Uh, and I think it's kind of been rekindled under the Trump administration here where they want to they want to, you know, do offshore drilling really all up and down the eastern and and, and west coast seaboards. Uh, and I, I think the concerns are pretty obvious, but I'd love to hear you explain why why Surfrider opposes this and I think why so many uh, groups oppose it. And a lot of there's a lot of bipartisan opposition to it, um, you know, especially here along the East Coast, where you've got a lot of Republican governors and other legislators, they're even like, we don't want this on our coastline. Yeah, I, you're right. And so the Trump administration, just over a year ago, 
um, proposed opening up 90% of U.S. waters to offshore drilling. So that's, you know, Maine to Florida, the eastern Gulf of Mexico that's been off limits, kind of the pan the Gulf side of Florida, the west coast from California to Alaska. Mm. Um, uh, a pretty huge overreach in our, our opinion. Um, you know, and the way this works is the executive branch, the Department of Interior, you know, the president's staff, creates a five-year leasing plan. This is the mechanism by which oil drilling's opened. You know, so as of today, you know, there's remnant drilling in California um, that's over 30 years old. There's, okay. there's drilling in the Gulf and there's some drilling in Alaska. You know, the Eastern seaboard right now is free of offshore drilling. And uh, as is, you know, um, the Pacific Northwest coast. So uh, that's the threat, you know, we learned, we keep learning this lesson, right? Like there's drilling is spilling, as we say. So uh, there's both catastrophic spills, the BP oil spill in the Gulf being an obvious one, Exxon Valdez. Uh, there was one in San Francisco Bay when a tanker crashed into a bridge, the Costco Busan. 2015, there was a pretty big 350,000 gallon spill in Santa Barbara. So these are happening and they're catastrophic, but there's small sales spilling every day. Mm. Uh, 10, over 10,000 small oil spills in the Gulf of Mexico since BP. Wow. So it's chronic. Uh, and then you have the infrastructure, the refineries, and uh, all of the coastal infrastructure, the piers, the pipelines that go into this on top of that, not to mention global warming and climate change and all the other things. So, you know, huge impacts to our coastline. And at the end of the day, a, we don't need it. We're exporting more oil than we're uh, bringing in. That oil isn't U.S. oil. Those those companies can, you know, take that oil and uh, sell it to anyone they want. Huh. Uh, and uh, tourism and recreation is about 12 times bigger, a larger economy than, uh, than offshore drilling. You know, and the claim of jobs is sort of also false because they're highly specialized jobs. They're going to be people from Texas flying into your coastlines to work off, uh, you know, it's not like the mom and pop are going to uh, pick up a job in an oil rig. Uh, so I think coastal communities sort of have nothing to gain and everything to lose. And uh, I, and I think that's why you see this bipartisan opposition. So, you know, if you run a restaurant, a pier concession, uh, a hotel on the coast, on the outer banks of North Carolina, you know, there's very little upside regardless yeah. of your political ideology, uh, to, to having offshore drilling off your coastline, you know, and there's a lot of potential downside. So we've seen <laughs> so communities across the U.S. Uh, pass resolutions. In fact, every single coastal community in South Carolina in 2015, when this Obama considered the same thing, passed mm -hmm. a resolution in opposition to drilling. Your, your hometown at Wilmington did the same. Uh, was something that Surfrider was involved in. And um, so we really have seen pretty, it's the emerging part, pretty massive opposition. Almost every coastal governor, uh, with the exception of a couple, Alaska, Maine, and Georgia, uh, have, and I don't know if that's changed since last fall's election, uh, but have not, have been opposed to offshore drilling. So, you know, um, the impacts are pretty obvious and uh, the threat isn't worth the, the costs aren't worth the benefits and uh so that's why we're out there you know opposing this that said powerful powerful interests with hundreds of millions of dollars pushing for this in uh 
in DC. And, uh, you know, that's part of the reason why, and, and an administration that is supportive. So, you know, we're trying to build a groundswell of, uh, local and state level opposition to pressure the decision makers to, uh, you know, to, to keep our coastline safe and not open up drilling. Um, got about 100 activists flying into D.C. at the end of February to talk to the Department of Interior, Bureau of Ocean Energy Management to make our case. Huh. <clears throat> it seems like it's basically the, the companies that stand a profit off this and then, you know, the political people in the administration that are for it. And it seems pretty overwhelmingly uh, across the board with others that are like, no, we don't we don't want this for all those reasons you outlined. Uh, and it, so where does it stand? Isn't it kind of frozen or something right now? They're still evaluating and. Yeah, so they, they have a pretty thorough process to make this plan, which is good. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is part of the Department of Interior, ultimately makes the decision. Um, they put out the 90% plan. They did a bunch of hearings last year uh, around the country, took public comment period, and then they're supposed to come out with the, what they call the proposed plan, round two. Uh, last That could come out any day now. I have a feeling the shutdown might have slowed that down a little bit. Interestingly enough, the interior staff that are working on this got pulled back early. Uh, so, oh, yeah. you know, so that made us think this is a priority. Uh, we're waiting for round two. So in round two, the map will shrink. Some subset of the 90%, which is everything, will be proposed for round two. You know, so will Southern California be on the map? Will the Carolinas likely, because that part's, you know, that's been an area that folks have targeted. Will the Alaska or the Eastern Gulf be on the map. We don't know. Uh, that will trigger another round of public hearings and public comments, and we're geared up and ready to, you know, marshal huge local opposition to anywhere. Because for us, sort of, you know, a, drilling anywhere is a threat everywhere, in our opinion. Yeah, yeah. Well, I see a lot of signs just around the around town here uh, opposing drilling, you know, don't drill NC and all yeah. that kind of stuff. So uh, we're ready. We're ready. Um, <clears throat> want to shift to a product that you guys put out that I've always been a fan of, and that's kind of the state of the beach report. And yeah. it, it goes through a little bit like state by state. And it's like a report card on on kind of coastal policy and, and coastal health, I think. Yep. Um, and I've always, I love it because as a communications person, I think it presents that information in like a really clear, digestible, non-wonky kind of way. Uh, and you can just go to your state and see what's up. Uh, so I wanted you to kind of talk about that that document and um, why you all put it out, what's in there. Sure. Well, A, that's great to hear that, it, that it's working. So thank you. Um, yeah, so the, the basis behind this report is, you know, are states preparing themselves effectively for a future with climate change and sea level rise, uh, which is going to bring increased coastal erosion an issue that states like North Carolina, frankly, have been dealing with for, for many years because of the mobile nature of barrier islands. Um, and, you know, are we taking steps to plan for a future that's going to keep our beaches healthy and our tourism economies and everything else going? So we sort of rate states across a number of different categories. You know, are they paying attention to climate change? You know, this has been a challenge in North Carolina. Yeah, it um, has been. <laughs> politically. Uh, yep. You know, do they have uh, policies on shoreline armoring? Because if you armor the beach in the face of coastal erosion, you're going to destroy your beaches. 
Um, you know, are they doing adaptive management plans to think about moving back in the face of sea level rise? Um, and so we sort of do an analysis across these different policies for each state, rate them, and then kind of roll that up into an overall grade. Um, and then put that out, like you're saying, you know, what, what grade does your state get in terms of its preparation? And um, the, the unfortunate thing that we're finding is a lot of the southeastern states, which are the ones that have the highest likelihood of being impacted because you have low elevation coastlines, barrier islands, are also some of the states that are sort of least prepared to address these issues. So we're trying yeah, a lot to get to that. A lot of that lack of preparation has been for political reasons, like you've said, where they've just, you know, the climate change denial phenomenon and uh, just not wanting to deal with that stuff. I, I get the sense, you know, in North Carolina, there's such a massive real estate value to what's built along the Outer Banks, all, all those homes and all those communities. And uh, I think that probably extends down throughout the Southeast U.S. So there, I think there's been some, as reports have come out about the vulnerability of, of that real estate and the money that could be lost, um, maybe that's motivated a little bit of attention to it because uh, there's been some slight improvement, I think. Yeah. Um, when, when during the year does that report come out? It comes out every November. Okay. All right. We've so been, Actually, we've been trying to push it up to, to have it coincide with the hurricane season, uh, um, partly because that's when you know, we see a lot of these serious impacts. No doubt. Hurricane Florence, the eye of Hurricane Florence passed two miles from my house uh, last, last September. And uh, yeah, you know, we got over 30 inches of rain massive here. Massive flooding. Yeah, incredible historic, historic flooding. But uh, yeah, climate change fueled that storm. I mean, there's no doubt. And we're just going to see more of that. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, sort of in a different realm outside of ours. In, on the West Coast, we're seeing the severity of these fires, you know, and it's very analogous to the hurricanes, right? Happening quicker, uh, happening, and these things are gaining sort of, strength more quickly than anticipated and then having impacts that are just at levels that we haven't seen before both climate fueled sort of you know natural disasters yeah one of the things i wonder about with climate change and sea level rise and erosion of coastlines and stuff uh from a surfing perspective is how how the breaks are going to change you know and like where those this this was always a wave right here this was this was the spot for decades and yeah. now now it's like too deep or you know, or that sandbar has been blown out or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, so I think just from that surfing perspective, it's uh, some of the impacts of climate change are concerning. And I'm, I'm just kind of curious to keep my eye on on the evolving uh, health of our of of wave spots and stuff. What's what's uh, what are you seeing with that? Well, you know, it's as you know, surf spots are very sensitive to sort of the conditions at the beach, the swell direction, and the tides. Yeah, uh, you know, and I've heard someone call future sea level rise, you know, which is estimated to be. Uh, permanent high tide, uh, which is, I think, a good way to think about it. In mm. fact, we were just out uh, last week flying with a group called Lighthawk looking at king tides. We have these really high, high tides in January and December around the country, and it's a good uh, they're the highest high tides of the year, uh, and it's a really good uh, indication of what our coast will look like in, in the future. 
and so, yeah, I mean, some surf spots will be flooded. So if they if they only break at low tide, they might be gone because mm -hmm. the water might be enough to shut them down. In theory, it could open up new spots. True. Uh, that said, I think our response to sea level rise is going to have a huge impact on the quality of surfing. So if we armor the coastlines with seawalls uh, and don't let that water naturally migrate in and impact beaches, you know, we're going to lose surf spots. Yeah. No question. So I think it's more likely how we respond to them is what's going to cause the problem. Apologies for the day. Yeah, no, no problem. <laughs> um, kind of last couple questions here. Uh, I'm just curious as, you know, why you think surfers are, are such good environmental advocates, you know, what, what, why, why are they uh, uniquely equipped or uniquely predisposed to, uh, to take on these types of, of fights and work? Um, you know, I think, uh, surfers are, are, are actually sort of natural scientists. They're citizen scientists. I mean, as I was saying, you know, I've got a Tide app on my phone. I'm looking at swell directions and periods and storms around the country. They know about uh, water temperatures and they're affected by water quality. They're looking at these beaches every day. Oh, the sandbars have moved. They're really good right now. And so just by virtue of being out there and participating in the sport, they're super in tune with the coastal environment. So that makes them great advocates because when they, they notice change, uh, and they understand all these fundamentals about oceanography and coastal processes. So I think there's that. I also think that, you know, they have, they, there's a selfish impact. They, uh, they, you know, they're going to get sick or their families, kids are going to get sick. So there, there's a personal motivation. Um, and, you know, the other thing is people are intrigued by surfers like they are with other sort of outdoor athletics. I mean, some of the pro surfers are doing extremely impressive things out there. So surfing uh, is an attractive and interesting sport, which is a great way of attract, you know, luring other people into caring about our oceans. Sort of like the uh, A, the canary in the coal mine, and also sort of like the, the charismatic sort of, you know, uh, critter, you know, megaphone yeah. of, of the coasts. And so, uh, <laughs> you know, I think they are a, a perfect advocate. And frankly, if surfers aren't advocating for our coasts, you know, who is? Right, right. And yeah, and, and surfers are so passionate about it, you know, and they can bring that they can bring that uh, conviction, I think, to to the advocacy and to the cleanups and whatever it might be. Um, last lastly, Chad, I wanted to ask you, you know, it's an important question of uh, what what people can do to help uh, people who might listen to this uh, and you know, might not already be active in surf rider. Um, what what types of things would you you know, encourage people out there to do that want to do more for our beaches and coasts and near shore waters? Yeah, I think there's three things you can do. Uh, you can join Surfrider. We're a membership organization. It's 25 bucks a year. It's like your Starbucks budget for a week. <laughs> and, uh, and that money supports our network. But most importantly, there's power in numbers. You know, uh, I, you know, I'd love to be as influential as the NRA is for gun rights, for uh, for coastal protection. And that's because they have millions of members. We have 50,000. I want to grow that number uh, Two, get active. We're an act. We're a uh, you know, we're an activist based organization. There's projects, there's beach cleanups, there's water quality monitoring, people going into schools. So go on our website, surfrider.org and find the chapter at you and you can roll up your sleeves and actually do something. It's a great community of people. So not only do you feel good about getting something done, you're going to meet some great people. 
You know, and third is make a commitment to do some things individually, you know, get your reusable coffee mug, eliminate the straw, get rid of the bag. I, there's a lot of things that we as individuals can do uh, to make a difference. And those catch on. You know, people notice when you do those things. And so I think, you know, there's a bunch of different ways. As I said earlier, like, I, I love the fact that everything we're talking about, there's a solution to them. We just need to, uh, you know, create enough will to get it done. Yeah, sounds good. Well, I, I like I said in the beginning, I really appreciate everything you guys do. As a, as a surfer myself, I'm glad you're out there. I'm glad your organization's out there. Uh, I appreciate the time, and hopefully we can uh, catch some waves someday together. But Absolutely. I'll look you up next time I'm at Wrightsville Beach. And yeah. Thank you so much for uh, giving me the opportunity to share my the story about Surfrider. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Yeah, thanks, Travis. Take care. You're in the water loop. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.